Our first reading will be from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now a second reading will be from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in a full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for this word today. Thank you that you have given us this word to tell us about your Son not merely to fill our heads with knowledge, but also to compel us in how we love and serve each other. We pray that this will begin from a place of being filled with awe and wonder again at all that Jesus has accomplished and all he is. So, Father, bless us this morning. We ask this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let me ask you a big question. What would you say is the biggest miracle in the Bible? What would you say is the biggest miracle in the Bible? The parting of the Red Sea in Exodus? Pretty big. Elijah calling down fire on Mount Carmel? Pretty exciting stuff there. Maybe even the raising of Lazarus from the dead? Perhaps though, you'd go to the resurrection of Jesus himself. And that wouldn't be bad. Indeed, the entire Christian faith rests on the resurrection. But I think, actually, to get to the biggest miracle of the Bible, you need to go back a little bit before the resurrection. Important as it is, it only makes sense. The resurrection only makes sense because of this miracle. I want to argue today that Christmas Day is the greatest miracle in the Bible. That in a virgin's womb, with the help of no man, a baby was conceived. 
that baby grew, and he, when he was born, the greatest miracle happened. God incarnated. God took on flesh. God became man. But this, uh, this truth, this great miracle, isn't there just simply for us to tick it off in our heads. It's not a doctrine just for knowledge. It is a doctrine that is deeply personal. It's a deeply personal miracle, a deeply personal doctrine of the Bible. Not only should it fill us with awe and wonder, but it should then compel us to love and serve each other sacrificially. So that's what we're looking at today, and that's where we're going. We're going to begin today with the Old Testament. We're going to touch very briefly in Isaiah 9, verse 6. And uh, we're going to start with the problem. We're going to start with the problem of sin and how it disrupts our relationship with God, and then how God promises to fix that. And then we're going to see how God fixes that problem by sending Jesus. And in particular, we're going to focus in on who Jesus is, how Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Then we're going to ask ourselves what this means, not just for our salvation, but also for our love and care for each other. Now, today's focus is on the birth of Jesus and what it meant. But before we, that, we need to rewind the clock a fair bit. We need to dip our toes a little into the backstory in the Old Testament. It's the story of humanity, a story of a good and loving God creating humanity to, be, to, humanity to be in relationship with him. It's the story of the rejection of that relationship, of the God who, knowing that rejecting him leads to death, he works to bring people back into relationship with him. He creates a nation for himself. He rescues them from slavery. He gives them good laws. He brings them into a land to enjoy him. But the story of rejection in the Old Testament continues. Though this nation is in special relationship with God, the habit of rejecting him for their own desires continues. And so, around 300 years, around 300 years before the birth of Jesus, God spoke through the prophet named Isaiah. God's people were in big trouble. In rejecting God, they had finally provoked his anger and he was going to exile them from the land. But in the middle of all of that judgment promise was this promise of great hope. Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7, uh, verse 6. It should just be verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, to a people who were constantly turning away from God, who had leaders and rulers who led the people to rebel against their God, God would send a new leader, someone who would finally lead the people to peace between them and God, and whose peace would flow then to the rest of the world. But how would God do it? How would he deal with the problem of sin before him? And the answer here in Isaiah 9, 6 is it comes in the form of a child, a human boy, a boy who would shoulder the government and the leading of God's people. And, and look at the boy's titles there in the final part of the verse. He would be called Wonderful Counselor. This boy would be wise beyond human capability. 
He would wisely lead his people. He would be called mighty God, a warrior with the power of God who would defeat his enemies easily. He would be called everlasting father. He would love his people like a father whose love would be endless. And he would be called prince of peace for he would be the one who would reconcile the hostility between man and God. Now, for those who love to take notes, let me repeat what those titles mean again. Wonderful counselor, a boy wise beyond human capability and would wisely lead his people. Mighty God, a warrior with the power of God who would defeat his enemies easily. Everlasting father, he would love his people like a father loves their child and his love would be endless. Prince of Peace, he would be the one who would reconcile the hostility between man and God. Now, if you didn't pick it up, those titles are monumental. They are huge. If this was on your resume, you would, and you saw this before someone, right? you would be hired instantly. Why? Why all this? Why all this? Isaiah is basically promising that this child would be no less than God himself. God would appear to solve the problems of his people, the problem of sin, and he would do it all by coming in the form of the child. But the big question, I guess, that remains is, would this actually fix the problem? If God turns up in human form, how will that fix anything? See, what makes this coming appearance special? Especially when you consider that in other religions of the time, the idea of a God appearing in human form was all too common. Remember, the nations surrounding Israel, they all had their myths and their legends, and they always told of stories of how the gods would appear to mortal men looking like men themselves. But in the end, none of those stories actually changed people and fixed the problems of humanity. Here's where the coming of Jesus as a baby is different. See, what we call the incarnation, God putting on flesh, is not simply God coming down to look like a man while living among us. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is both fully a man and fully God at the same time. In every sense, he was truly and fully a man and God. And the Bible tells us why this is important for our salvation and for our lives together. Now, that might be a little bit hard to believe, this idea that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human, especially when you're looking at pictures of baby Jesus on the internet. But read with me again what the Apostle Paul says, speaking of Jesus. Have a look again at Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Now, in some of your Bible readings, you may have, it may have read, uh, he made himself nothing. Actually, it's probably better to be phrased, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, the first thing that Paul says here is that Jesus was in the form of God. That's another way of saying that Jesus was equal with God. He has God's exact qualities, his nature, and his characteristics. Everything that you could say about God, you could say about Jesus. But even though Jesus is equal with God, when he came into this world, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had the rights and the privileges of God, but he chose not to lean on them. 
imagine for a second the King of England, right? You've got a picture of the King of England, of, of King Charles. I was going to say Prince Charles. King Charles now, the King of England. How does he drive around? By what means and privilege and rights does he have? Well, he has a private car, a private chauffeur. That is his right and privilege as a king. But imagine instead of a private car, he's going down the road to a meeting with Parliament, he just hops onto the bus instead. Right? This is kind of, in a small way, what Jesus is doing. Jesus is equal with God, but when he came to earth, he did not press upon this privilege. But in verse 7, it says, we read, he emptied himself. Now, what does it mean for Jesus to empty himself? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus gave up all of his divine attributes. He did not switch off God mode and then just play as a human. You see multiple times in the Gospels that Jesus retains his full divinity. He has the power of the sickness and disabilities, even raising people from the dead. He has a divine authority over demons who recognize him and are afraid of him. He has creation power when he turned water into wine or when he controlled the nature and elements by walking on water and calming a raging storm at his word. He even claimed divine authority to forgive sins. To empty himself does not mean that Jesus gave up being God. It means that he gave up the glory and dignity he had before his birth. Before he came in the flesh, he was adored and glorified by countless angels. He radiated all the goodness and perfection of God. That is what he emptied. Think of it like this again. Again, think of King Charles, right? Instead of his royal uniform and crown and the servants running around left, right to serve him, imagine he gives up all of that for the dirty, torn up and smelly clothes of a homeless man. A photo of that would hit the front page of every newspaper and magazine and website. It would be a massive shock to the system for the English public, wouldn't it? And that's the level of shock that all of heaven has and perhaps a level of shock that we should have too. Jesus, the most glorious and beautiful and dignified being who had been praised and glorified in eternity past, threw off that glory, emptying himself of that. He comes in human form conceived in Mary's womb. There for nine months he grew inside his mother's womb until that first Christmas he was born. Not in some clean, modern hospital room, but a smelly, filthy animal store. No doctor to catch him, but the shaky, calloused hands of a carpenter catching a baby that wasn't his. And then this little baby opens his lungs for the first time, breathes in oxygen molecules he created at the beginning before letting out that cry of new birth. For a bed, his parents have no option but a mold and bacteria-riddled feeding trough 
maybe lined with a bit of hay. He, we, we have lost the shock of all of that. Have we lost the shock of how much Jesus gave up to be with us? So when Paul says that he was made in the likeness of men, Paul is saying that he was truly human in every sense of the word. Unfortunately, that sense is lost. Again, as I mentioned before, whenever you Google pictures of baby Jesus, he just looks unnatural. You agree with me? What kind of baby sits there like this? <laughs> right? With his arms wide open, with that kind of serene look on his face. I'm so happy to be on this hay. Right? <laughs> if Jesus was actually born in a hospital today, and you went to go see him in the nursery, you would not be able to pick him out. He wouldn't be sitting there like that. Right? He wouldn't be lying there. He would just look like a newborn, like everyone else. He looked like everyone else. And then he grew up just like everyone else. He had a childhood. He, he became an adult. He worked. He had a job like everyone else. He displayed a, a wide range of emotions from anger to deep sadness. He, he got tired. He hungered. He marveled and laughed. I labor this point a bit because I don't, we don't want to confuse who Jesus is. Jesus was not 50% man and 50% God. And he is not some sort of hybrid between man and God as though he was kind of blended in a smoothie, right? And we don't want to say that he had a human body, but his mind was divine, as though there was kind of some distinction between the two. No, he was a full flesh and blood human being, totally, completely. He retained his divinity, and in every way that we are human, he is as well. See, Jesus wasn't just some divine being wearing human clothes. He really was human. Now, why is this important? Right? Why, why, why this mysterious union of full divinity and full humanity in the one person? Why did he come in that way? He came to prove unquestionably that God cares for us. In a small way, that he, it's, it's like the TV show Undercover Boss. Has anyone ever seen this? Right? Uh, it captures, the, the TV show cap, uh, Undercover Boss captures this idea in a small way. Um, the CEO of a big company uh, puts on a disguise, right? trading their suits for, of the office for the working uniforms of the company workers. They sometimes put a wig on and a, and a fake mustache. Right? And they head into the workplace and these factories and stores to know what the conditions are like. Right, to find out for themselves what it's like on the factory floor and, to, and basically to learn how to better improve things. But, you know, Jesus doesn't need to do that. We learned a few weeks ago that Jesus was, is the creator of all things and he's actually also the sustainer of all things. Read with me Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 up on the screen. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and here's crucially the thing, in him all things hold together. Right? You see it there at the end? He sustains everything, Right? Chemistry and the laws of chemistry exist because of Jesus. The laws of physics exist and are sustained because of Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't need to put on a disguise and hide among the common folk to learn what's going on. He he would already know as the creator and sustainer of all things. So why does he come? Again, he comes to prove beyond doubt that he cares. He enters into our world so that we can know, that we can believe, and that we can trust that he is able to perfectly sympathize with our weaknesses. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Fully human, truly human like us, yet without sin. And as a human, he experienced everything we have. Have you ever been tempted into sin? Have you ever had money issues and worried about the bank account balance? Have you ever been ripped off? You've been taken advantage of because you just didn't know better. Have you ever experienced the pain of loneliness? If you've been afraid, if you have been made fun of, if you've, never, if you've not had family support in a big decision, if your friends aren't there for you when you need them, if you've ever had friends talk behind your back or had lies and rumours spread about you, if you've ever been lonely or had someone close to you die, then Jesus knows what it's like. He has gone through all of that. He is not unsympathetic. See, friends, one of of the most important questions we could ever ask is, who is God? What is he like? But perhaps just as equally important, but unasked, is this question. Does God know me? In a real and personal way, does God know what it's like to be me? And the incarnation of Jesus tells us yes. If you've ever wondered if God knows you, then you can look to Jesus in the pages of the Gospels and know that he really does. He gets you. He is sympathetic to all the pain and the struggle in your life. Whether you're a teenager trying to navigate the world of study and friends and your personal identity to all the way up to a retiree finding life a struggle with health and and family concerns and everyone in between, Jesus knows what it's like. And because Jesus is also truly God, fully divine, then that means he can take care of your most pressing and basic need to be reconciled to God to the God who loves you. Jesus, in his perfect union of man and God, bridges the gap between us and God. He makes God known to us, and through Jesus, we are able to come to God for forgiveness in life. Because Jesus is fully a man, he is able to be a perfect substitute. He absorbs God's anger against our sin in our place. 
because Jesus is fully divine, it means that his sacrificial death is of such high value that it is able to pay for the sins of the whole world, for all of us. See, this whole incarnation thing isn't just something for our heads to tick off. It's not a doctrine of no consequence. The gospel hangs on it. If Jesus wasn't truly human, then he could not be an appropriate substitute for us. If Jesus wasn't truly divine, then he couldn't forgive our sins and he couldn't pay for humanity's sins. So this Christmas, as we sing of the baby Jesus and as we wander around the shops and you bump into the very rare scene of the nativity set up, let's remember how startling it is that Jesus came in the flesh. Let's remember that everything hangs on his coming. His coming as both human and God. As I said, the incarnation isn't just something we tick off in our doctrine list. It also challenges how we live. Paul establishes who Jesus is in Philippians 2, 6 to 8, and we're kind of working backwards through the passage. But now notice in chapter 2, verse 5, he says this. He calls, notice what he calls them to. He tells them, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain how Jesus emptied himself of glory, took on human flesh, and became a servant, even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus took a journey from the heights of glory and went down, 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 and down to serve us. And so in the same way, Christians are to have that same mindset, a mindset of not putting yourself first, but to follow in the footsteps of our Saviour. The Saviour who put his Father's will above his own and how sacrificially he served and those who rejected him. But Jesus journeyed down so far in order to be with us and serve us. And if we have that same mindset, then we are going to be asking ourselves, how far are we willing to go for each other? If Jesus' journey took him from the throne of heaven all the way down to serving us, and dying shamefully on the cross to achieve our forgiveness and reconciliation to God, then there should be nothing too small or too great for us to do for each other. Now, we need the obvious caveat, right, that we need to care for ourselves as we care for others. But I think the big challenge of Paul's call here is this. The moment we say, that's too much for me to do, that's too low for me to go, is the moment we say that that task is lower than what Jesus did for us. I'm not talking to the overloaded person or the person who needs to say no. I'm talking to the person who needs sacrificial service modelled on Jesus. Most of us. If I have the same mind as Christ then there is nothing too low or too humble for me to do for others. And if I have the same mind as the incarnate Christ, then I will gladly share the griefs and joys of my fellow brothers and sisters. Read them again, verses 1 to 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, Any affection and sympathy complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now see how Paul wanted this church to love and serve each other out of their connection to Jesus. Right? Verse 1 is their connection to Jesus and his spirit. To have affection and sympathy are the, are the realities that you have now that you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you will have affection and sympathy for others. If you are connected with him, so if you trust and follow Jesus, if you are united to him by faith, then be together of the same mind in verse 2. Have the same love. Have one mind, love and serve each other. In verse 3, don't do anything out of personal ambition or pride, but humbly look on others as more important than you. Right? It's the same attitude and the same mind that Jesus had. Right? The incarnation then is a, is a model for how we love and serve each other. This was the one who was truly divine in every way, who was truly human in every way. And yet he also entered into our lives. He lived in our shoes. He understood our thoughts and feelings and fears and dreams. And he gladly shared our griefs and our joys. That's the one we follow. We gladly share each other's griefs, our griefs and lives. So this Christmas... Let's keep marveling at how Jesus came, emptying his glory to take on human form, one of us. Let's be comforted to know that Jesus, God in the flesh, knows all of our weaknesses and yet still loves us. Let's rejoice that Jesus' incarnation means that salvation is accomplished and then let us that his life compel us to love each other sacrificially. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, as we are brought comfort from the gospel, as we participate in faith and life, uh, eternal life with you by your spirit, as you grow our affection and sympathy together, we pray that you would help us to have the same mind the same love, that we would not do anything from personal ambition or pride, but that we would count each other more significant than ourselves because we saw Jesus do that. So help us to have that mind of your son. He was equal with you. He is equal to you. But when he came, he emptied himself of that. He did not seek equality with you. He did not count himself higher above others, but he came and he humbled himself to the point of death and served us. So, Father, help us to have that same mind and do that for our joy and your glory. Amen.